that uh, whets my appetite for Monday, Thursday, when we will gather that evening. And a part of that very special Passion Week observance will be the observance of the Lord's Supper. And that song sets the stage for us as followers of Christ, as believers of Jesus Christ, as we gather, we gather to remember. And I trust that even before the Passion Week, all through this season of Lent, I I trust that every day, in some way, in your devotion time, your Bible reading, your prayer time, that you are given some thought to who Jesus is and what He did specifically that week, that day. You know, as we have been walking through the Gospel of Matthew, and certainly this applies to the other Gospels, the other three Gospels as well, when when the Gospel writer has given us the account from their perspective of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, and beginning with his birth and, and the, the inauguration of his ministry and, and then, you know, uh, his teachings and his preachings and his miracles and, you know, the, like a movie, it's, it's moving along one scene after another. The pace is, is going along at a good clip. We're covering three plus maybe a half a years there in, in a good amount of time. But then as we, as the gospel writers bring us up to the Passion Week, it's almost as if the, the, like a, a, a very skillful, uh, uh, writer for a movie, they began to slow it down. And so as we have watched in that last week of Jesus' earthly ministry, you will have observed how Matthew, and, and so does Mark and, and Luke and John, they begin to slow the, the pace down as if to say, okay, we're not going to move at the same pace that we did when Jesus was in Capernaum and in uh, Galilee and coming down the Jordan River Valley. We we're slowing it down as if the Gospel writer is saying, don't miss this. Don't miss this. Look what Jesus is doing here. Look what is happening here. Because you see, it's all orchestrated. Folks, listen, if you don't get anything out of the messages on the week of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, understand this. Our Lord Jesus Christ was not a victim of circumstances. It wasn't a matter of a man, innocent man, being at the wrong place at the wrong time. All au contraire. If anything, he was the right man, the only God man, at the right place at the precise moment that God Almighty, eternal, sovereign creator, omniscient ruler of the universe determined. Everything is happening over and over and over. You'll notice in your scriptures that it says, and this fulfilled prophecy, and to fulfill prophecy, and this fulfilled the word of God. And the same thing as we are now all the way to Jesus' last day in His earthly ministry prior to His death, burial, and resurrection. We call it Good Friday. And there's some maybe misunderstanding there. It is good in the fact that the Savior of the world came. He fulfilled His mission. 
But it was not a good day for the Lord if you look at it from a human perspective. And so we're up to chapter 27 in the Gospel of Matthew. We are on the events of Good Friday. We have watched our Lord in chapter 26 agonize in prayer in the Garden of Eden as He has literally poured His heart out to God the Father. If there's any way, Father, that this cup may be removed from my lips, let it be so. Nevertheless, not my will, but Your will be done. And then shortly thereafter, Jesus experienced the desertion of His disciples, the betrayal of one of His disciples. He was arrested, subjected to a mock kangaroo trial, if you will, trumped up false witnesses and, and, and charges. Uh, total violation of the legal code of, of Judaism, even of that day. Because there was a very sinister force at work to inflict as much pain and hardship upon the Son of God as possible. Now, I know you're thinking surfacely as I would too. Oh yeah, the Sanhedrin. The, the chief priests, the, the elders, the scribes. Oh yeah, they, they headed out for Jesus. There was no hiding that fact over and over it says. And they plotted how they might arrest Him and kill Him. There's no mystery about their motives. But folks, I submit for you to understand too that behind them is a greater force at work. Who in all of creation, in all the universe, would like to foil God's plan? would like to inflict pain and hardship upon the Son of God than the very one who initiated sin in the Garden of Eden, the tempter, the adversary, Satan himself. He's the force behind all of the evil that you see transpiring there. So as we look at chapter 27, and we, we have already looked at several verses. We're picking up in verse 27 in uh, Matthew's Gospel. But before you do, I, I want to just offer this as, as a theme for the message this morning. Jesus Christ suffered greatly. That's the understatement of the century. Jesus Christ suffered greatly. And quoted in 1 Peter 3.18, the just for the unjust. He's the just, we're the unjust. The just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God. That's the essence of the Gospel. That the just, the perfect sinless Son of God, would become sin for the unjust. You and me. Why? So that He might bring us to our Creator. To the God who loves us. And the only way to God is through Christ. And the question that I meditated upon through the preparation of this message, and I encourage you to meditate on this morning, is how does my knowledge of the events pertaining to Jesus' crucifixion affect the way I live? Oh, dear brother or sister, if you can simply look at the recounting of the Easter story and simply say, oh, that's nice. That was too bad. What's for dinner? What am I going to do next week? What are my plans for this summer? If we, can, if we can look honestly at the scriptural account of the crucifixion of Christ and it not 
have some deep, lasting impact on the way we think and the way we act and the way we feel and the way we live, we've missed the mark. It should never grow old. I never grow tired of reading and hearing the story of Jesus' birth, the Christmas story. But I also don't grow tired of reading the story of His death, His burial, His resurrection. Everything that transpires is in fulfillment of Scripture, in fulfillment of prophecy. We'll look at parts of of Psalm 22, a psalm by David, and it is an accurate account of just what happened to Jesus on the day that He was crucified. We just read responsibly from Isaiah 53, where Isaiah the prophet, 700 years before Jesus was even born, gives us a very vivid description of Jesus in His crucifixion when He says in verse 4 of Isaiah 53, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. And by His stripes we are healed. Amen? By His stripes we are healed physically, emotionally, spiritually, eternally. Praise God. And we, like sheep, have gone astray. And we have turned everyone His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Like a sheep... Before its shearers, he's silent, so he openeth not his mouth. In verse 8 of that same chapter, for he was cut off from the land of the living. So was Jesus. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. We're looking at three groups or categories of key players. This morning, as we begin in chapter 27, in verse 27, the crucifixion of Christ. The three key groups of actors or players that you need to watch to get the fullness of what transpired that fateful day outside of the city gates of Jerusalem. First of all, I want you to consider the cruelty of His captors. The absolute cruelty of Jesus' captors, and I'm speaking of the Roman soldiers. The ones that had Him in custody physically. Even before Jesus goes to the cross. Even before He gets to the cross. Understand that our Lord was severely, physically, emotionally tortured. There's no other way to put it, folks. I know there's a lot of... Squall going on about should our FBI and CIA torture, you know, these war criminals, you know, the terrorists and all, waterboarding and, and what's going on with parents in this country today? I, I read and saw a news story of a parent out, I believe in Colorado, that was waterboarding his children. I, I said, where, where is the mind of a parents gone nowadays? Children are being subjected to torture. Folks, that just blows my mind. I guess that's my old protective services of children days coming out in me right now. But Jesus was tortured. Now listen, you can go back all the way into Luke chapter 22 and you will find where Jesus was there in the hands of, of the temple guards. 
another group of Roman soldiers who were assigned to the, to protect the temple. And, 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 you know, just because temple is associated with their name, don't, don't be deceived because these fellows were anything but gentle. Uh, when the Sanhedrin had Jesus arrested and he was being held by the temple guards, Luke brings out something that the other gospel writers do, doesn't make clear. While Jesus is waiting to be tried, they've got him back there, these burly Roman soldiers, and it says in chapter 22 of Luke's Gospel, verse 63, Now the men, the soldiers, who held Jesus mocked Him and beat Him. You talk about a flagrant violation of justice. He hadn't even been charged. And it says, And having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy! Who is it that struck you? And many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. You see, the Roman soldiers were playing a game. If you were a Roman soldier, a member of a cohort of soldiers, of the temple guard of any other, the, the praetorian guards, any of the Roman soldiers who were assigned to these duties, You'd understand when one of the guys says, Hey, we've got a, 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 a stone pigeon here. Let's play hot hand. And that's exactly what they did. The game went something like this. All these soldiers, and there's a whole bunch of them. They blindfold the victim. And then they take turns with their fists, punching him in the face, straight on. Each one of them. Boom! One at a time. Boom! At a time. Boom! And after they've all done this, except one, they take the blindfold off and they said, okay. And they all hold their fist up and say, which one of us didn't hit you? And then if he doesn't guess correctly, blindfold goes back on. Poof! Poof! Now this is going on with our Lord while He's just waiting to be tried. So can you imagine by the time that they bring Him to Pilate, his face is pummeled. Teeth probably knocked out. Nose swollen. Blood dripping. Eyes bruised. I mean, he looked like he'd been in a gang fight with his hands tied behind his back. That's just part of the abuse that went on. Now, now we see that Jesus is now in the hand of... We go back to Matthew chapter 27. And as I was closing out my first part of chapter 27, I was ending up... And, and I didn't get a, a chance to, to touch on the last couple of verses. I, I mentioned that Pilate had washed his hands and, and he says, I'm innocent of the blood of this just person you see, you see to it, talking to the mob. He's saying, I'm, I'm done. I, I'm not going to have anything to do there in verse 24. Verse 25, all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. And then it simply says, now Matthew is very succinct. He says in verse 26, Then he released Barabbas, just like the people had asked, to the people. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. When he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And folks, in that one phrase there, is probably one of the most torturous treatments of a, of a, a victim that anybody could experience. When they... When the Roman soldiers were allowed to scourge a victim, who most of the people on their way to the cross to be crucified were scourged. So it's standard procedure. But Jesus attracts a lot of attention now because he's a, he's a Jew who's despised by the Jews. 
So he's in the eyes of these Roman soldiers who don't have any compassion whatsoever for Jews anyway, he's the worst of Jews. He, he's a dead man. We can have our way with him. He has no value as far as Jews are concerned or we're concerned. And so they take him and they tie his hands to a pole. His body hangs limp from that. And one big soldier on one side and another big soldier on the other side. They strip him naked. And then with whips that have leather thongs that go out on them, straps, and to those straps are tied pieces of bone, metal, bone, metal, bone, metal, all the way up. These are not designed just to leave whelps. Historians tell us that after a scourge and a person's body was so ripped, these whips were designed. One soldier a hit and they alternated one after another, after another. And, and typically in a scourging, as you would probably remember in the, the Mel Gibson movie, The Passion, these whips were designed to do as much possible torturous damage to a physical body that it could withstand. And so, one after another, each strip or strap of those whips pulled away flesh, pulled away tendons, pulled away muscle, and historians tell us that after a scourging, it wasn't uncommon for a person's even internal organs to be exposed. They bled profusely. I just want to let you understand, this is what the Son of God your Savior, my Savior, experience even before He gets to the cross. And now we move to chapter 27. Then the soldiers of the governor, this is Pilate, took Jesus into the praetorium, which is the house or the residence of the governor, and gathered the whole garrison, which could have been as many as 600 soldiers. We're not talking about a handful. We're talking about a mob. Now this is after Jesus has already been scourged. This is after He's been punched repeatedly. And they stripped Him and they put a scarlet robe on Him. They're going to have some fun with Him. Remember, he's, he's, in their eyes, He's nothing. He's a toy. Let's have some fun with Him. He's going to die anyway. So they put this robe on him and they, they twist a crown of thorns and out in our missions display, I believe we put uh, thorns that came off of a, a tree that was probably found in the Middle East. It was in Africa. The acacia tree. And the thorns are probably about that long. And they wound a, a, a crown of these thorns and with no mercy whatsoever, shove that down upon his head. And you know the blood capillaries are close to the scalp and punctured those and blood is pouring down his scalp. And so they, they do that. They put it on his head and they put a reed to, to, to be his scepter in his hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him saying, Hell, the King of the Jews. Just look at this. The King of the Jews. Oh, and he's something. Let's bow down to him. And oh, hell to the King of Jews. And they spat on him. The, 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 the worst of derision that you could offer to, to show scorn to somebody is spit in their face. So one after another, they're spitting in his face, and if that's not bad enough, they take the scepter, the reed out of his hand, Matthew tells us in verse 30, and they begin to strike him on top of that crown. Folks, let me tell you something. It's not bad enough to have that thing pushed down on your head, but you have somebody take a stick and repeatedly beat 
beat it. It's like driving little nails into your head. This is what they did. Verse 31, And then they mocked Him, and they took the robe off of Him, and they put His own clothes on Him, and led Him away to be crucified. This is the preparation for the cross. This is before He even gets to the cross. This is the abuse that He is afflicted on His body. But then we see the abuse that's inflicted upon His person as they mock Him, they spit on Him, they do mock royalty before Him, they strip Him naked, which was a humiliating thing to any Jewish person. All of this before. And now we move forward to the abuse that took place at the foot of the cross. Matthew picks up in verse 32. Now as they came out of the praetorian on the way to the cross, they found a man of Serene, Simon. We all know about Simon of Serene. And it says, they compelled him to bear his cross. They didn't say, hey, we, we need a volunteer over here. You know, Jesus has been scourged. He's been punched like a, a cushion. He, he's bleeding profuse. Uh, the cross weighed about 200 pounds. And when you've, when you are virtually anemic from having blood loss, just about all of Jesus' physical stamina is gone. So they basically went over with a sword and said, hey you, carry the cross. I remember in the movie of the depiction of the crucifixion of Christ, Simon kind of backs up, recalls like, I, I don't want to, I don't want anything to do with this. And the Roman soldier reaches down, clutches the handle of his sword and said, uh, we want you to carry the cross. Oh, okay, okay. And so we get to the cross. And it tells Luke, I mean, Matthew tells us there in verse 33, and when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, the place of a skull. And in the Latin, Golgotha is translated Calvaria, from which we get Calvary. The place of the skull. You know, there's no specific reference to a heel. I know we sing about on that hill Calvary and, and, and talk about up Mount Calvary and on that hill. There's really not a specific reference to a hill. Golgotha simply means a place that resembles a skull. So from that, people have surmised that, well, if it was a skull, it was probably round shape. And there is a hill that if you go over there and tour the Holy Land today, they'll take you to. And, it, and it's commonly known as um, Gordon's Calvary. And it's a hill. And, and actually there are some crude formations in that hill that makes it take on the likeness of a skull. The eyes, the nose. So, so that's where they'll tell you that Jesus was crucified. He was crucified at a place called Calvaria, the place of the skull. In verse 34, he finally makes it to the place where they're going to crucify him and the two robbers that are crucified with him. In verse 34, they gave him, the soldiers, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall. And, and you know, interesting in, in Mark's Gospel, chapter 15, verse 23, he translates that, that to, it's mingled with myrrh. Which I think is ironic, because when Jesus was his first born, you remember the wise men came, and they brought gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Which is a perfume, but it also was used as a um, narcotic, a sedative, if you will. 
And, and the soldiers would use this, they would mingle it with wine, and this is in fulfillment of Psalm 69, 21, where it talks about, they gave to me wine mixed with gall. And, and the whole purpose of giving the victim, the person to be crucified, this sedative, if you will, narcotic, was simply so that it would calm them down. It wasn't for the, it wasn't an act of mercy. Please don't think that there's a shred of mercy going on here as to ease the pain of crucifixion. That's not what they're up to. This is just a temporary common of the nerves so that they can nail the nails to the wrist, to the feet. Because typically a crucifixion victim, when as soon as they begin nailing the nails, they begin to fight and flounder the hands and, and flounder and try to escape and they, they try to sedate them. But you'll notice that, but when he had tasted it, he would not drink it. Because you see, our Savior, our Lord, understood that this was the cup that his Father had intended. And he was fully prepared to experience everything that is associated with the pain of the cross physically, spiritually, emotionally. And when they had crucified Him, in other words, nailed His wrist, a blunt iron Roman peg was drilled through the wrist of, of, on both hands to the cross beams. They crossed the feet of the victim and drove a similar spike through the ankle attaching the feet with the knees slightly bent. People typically didn't die from crucifixion from the actual physical trauma to the body. A person typically dies on a cross in crucifixion from suffocation. Because extended on the cross with your hands up tied to, uh, or nailed to the cross beams, your extended, your diaphragm can't fill up with air. Or else you can't expel the carbon monoxide from so in order to breathe, you've got to push up with feet already nailed to the cross or pull up by wrists that are nailed to the cross and the sheer excruciating pain to just breathe a breath is what crucifixion... Crucifixion was an ancient practice. It wasn't something that was just new. It was practiced by the um, Persians initially. And then uh, passed on to the Greek Empire and then perfected by the Romans. Jesus and, and the robbers were not the first ones to be crucified. Historians tell us that thousands, tens of thousands of Jews were crucified by the Roman government because they wanted to use this brutal, vicious, torturous kind of a death sentence to make a statement to all the other people who were conquered by the Romans, don't mess with Rome. Typically, it took a person not hours, sometimes days, sometimes as many as six days on the cross to die. That wasn't the case with Jesus, as we'll see. But you'll notice in verse 35 that as they crucified Jesus, they divided His garments, cast in lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided My garments among them, and for My clothing they cast lots. And then sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Hold your Bibles there and go with me back in the Old Testament to Psalms. A Psalm of David I mentioned earlier. In Psalm 22, the writer of the Psalms, David, is describing this, this event. And in verse 18, he says in, verse, in Psalm 22, he says, 
They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Folks, this is written nearly a thousand years before Jesus comes on the scene. And if you go back and read, listen to, to, to how the writer David describes with a, a amazing sense of detail. Look at verse 12. I'm, I'm still in, in Psalm 22. Verse 12. David says, Many bulls have surrounded me, describing those Gentile soldiers that are around the cross. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths as a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. Folks, when they drop that cross into the hole for which is designated, it jars that person pulling joints, bones out of joint. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. He's losing blood profusely, going into heart failure. It has melted me within me. My strength is dried up like potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You, you have brought me to the dust of death. Verse 16, for the dogs, speaking of the Gentiles, Roman soldiers, have surrounded me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stripped him virtually naked. And it's very interesting. David is writing this prophetically, describing crucifixion to a T. And these, this is years before the Persians even come on the scene. This is before crucifixion has even been practiced. And they divided his clothes at the Roman soldiers at the foot of the cross. And then in verse 36, to add insult to injury, it says they are sitting down and they kept watch over Him. They've inflicted all this pain on Him and now these big old soldiers, there's usually four assigned to a crucifixion victim. Number one, to make sure that the family or friends don't try to come up and do anything to ease their pain or to just kill them out of mercy. So they guard him. But they also, this is the entertainment. These are trained killers. They're bloodthirsty pagans. This is what they thrive on. They live for this. They're sitting back and they say, look at him, look at him, look at him. Watch this, watch this, watch that. And so this is the cruelty that our Lord has spoken, uh, or subjected to, spoken to us in the Scriptures. The callous treatment of the Son of God. And you know, I think about the reality of the number of God's people today who, because of their faith, because of their commitment to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, they are being tortured. We can't put our hands on that. We can't get our minds around that. We can't grasp and understand that there are brothers and sisters in Christ in other parts of the world who are being treated just as inhumanely. Just as cruelly, viciously. But Jesus had told His disciples all the way back in chapter 10 of Matthew, in verse 16, Jesus said, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be as wise as serpents and harmless as doves. 
But he says, Beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in synagogues, synagogues, and you will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. He said in verse 22 of chapter 10, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. And there are brothers and sisters in Christ today in other parts of the world who are being hated and they are being hunted because of their faith. I was reading online a, a, a report from the organization Voice of the Martyrs. And this is one of the reports that was given of, of Christians in northern Nigeria. Quote, Christians in northern Nigerian cities are being targeted and butchered like animals nearly every day by radical Islamists with little attention given by the international community. Folks, that, time, that same kind of persecution is going on in the countries of Iran. You know about that. In Colombia, Uzbekistan, Indonesia, just to name a few of the countries. America is one of the few places in the world where you won't be ostracized, if not persecuted, or killed for your faith. Jesus says, the world hated me, it will hate you. And I believe it's our responsibility to be conscious of this, to be praying for our brothers and sisters, and to do everything we can to move the hearts of our political leaders, to be aware, to make the, the international community aware of this kind of inhumane treatment of God's people. We need to move on because not only do you see the cruelty of His captors, but you see the antagonism of His adversaries. And we're talking about the abusive words by a wicked and fickle crowd as we move on in chapter 27. And look at verse 39 with me. And those who pass by blasphemed Him, wagging their heads. Again, this is foretold in Psalm 22. David said, when I'm there being crucified, the Lord, He says, the people will come by, the enemies, they will wag their head, they'll shake their head, they'll offer blasphemous comments, they will mock Me. Who are these people? Don't forget, this is the Passover. There are thousands and thousands of Jews coming from all... Listen, the city of Jerusalem is a buzz. And the place where Jesus is crucified is on the, on the side of a main road. And many of those who are walking by, who get, who get caught up in, in, in the movement of taunting Jesus, many of them, ladies and gentlemen, were former admirers of the Lord. And now they're joining in in taunting Jesus. The Lord. You know, if you go back in Matthew chapter 21 and verse 8 and 9, you don't have to go back there, but do you remember when Jesus first came into the city of Jerusalem at the time of the Passover and the people were greeting Him? There were, there were multitudes of people. They had put palm branches in their coats on the, on the road as He rode in on the donkey and they were cheering Him and they were, they were saying, Hosanna! God saves! Hosanna to the Son of David! And now they're walking by what a transformation. And they're taunting Him. Shaking their heads at Him. In verse 39, And those who passed blasphemed Him, wagging their heads, and saying, You who destroyed the temple and built it in three days, save yourself if you are the Son of God. Come down from the cross. And this is the kind of verbal abuse that Jesus is suffering while hanging there in physical agony. You know what it makes me think about sometimes the fickle followers of Christ, even today? I'm talking about the people that want to get on the Christian bandwagon. 
When things are going along good and the church is offering something that's entertaining or something that is profitable or something that is that, that will benefit them or Christianity in general will make them look better as a businessman if they can use the Christian label as a professional out there somehow. Oh, it's always good, but then then let the tide turn. Let hard times start settling in. Let Christianity not be seen in quite the favorable manner and watch and see how fast their tune changes. They'll deny even being a Christian. They'll deny being a part of a church. They'll separate themselves from anything associated with Christ. But these aren't the only antagonists. The worst of the antagonists we're going to take a look at right now. Look at verse 41. Likewise, the chief priest, also mocking with the scribes and the elders, Folks, you're talking about the Sanhedrin. You are talking about the spiritual leaders of the nation of Israel. You're talking about the ones who were supposed to model godliness. And now they're standing at the foot of the cross of the Son of God. And listen to what they say in verse 42. See, they're agitating the crowd. They're egging the crowd on. They're they're offering these taunts. And they don't even have the dignity to speak directly to Jesus. They're just talking back and forth loudly enough for Him to hear. But they don't want to give Him any any kind of, you know, dignity by addressing Him directly. They're just saying it so that He can hear it, so that we torture His ears. And it will egg on the crowd. In verse 42, they say, He saved others. Himself He cannot save. If He is the King of Israel, let Him come down from the cross and we will believe Him. He trusted in God. Let Him deliver Him now if He will have Him. For He said, I am the Son of God. And then Matthew says in in verse 44, even the robbers, one on the right, one on the left, hearing all of this, they, they chime in now. And they're taunting Him too. That's significant. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But the fact is, he, the, the very crowd that despised the Lord the most, the very religious leaders who had determined in their minds and plotted and schemed how they would have Him arrested, how they would have Him killed to get Him out of the way. Because you see, Jesus is the truth. And the truth exposes the darkness of deception. And Jesus in His ministry and His teaching and His handling of the authority of the Word of God was exposing this superficial bunch of religious leaders for just what they were. In fact, in John's Gospel in chapter 8, He called them for what they are. He says, you are not the sons of Abraham. You are the sons of your father, the devil. And what gives you pleasure is to do the the pleasure, the work of your father, who is the devil. Isn't it ironic? That at the foot of the cross of the Son of God is a collection of the sons of Satan. Empowered and, and, and invigorated by nothing but pure, sheer evil. And this is what our Lord is subjected to. They are unrelenting, inventing their hatred towards Christ because He represents the truth Ironically, ironically. Now just listen to the play on words. They're saying, hey, He saved others. <laughs> you see, they're not denying the fact that He has worked miracles. They can't deny the fact that a man called Lazarus died, was in the grave four days, and he's walking around in Bethany alive and well. They can't deny that. He saved others. Isn't it funny? He can't save Himself. 
Oh, if He is the Son of God, as He claimed that He is the Son of God, then just let Him come on down off the cross. And in the spiritual darkness of their absolute ignorance, absolute ignorance, they didn't realize that the very Savior of the world was on the cross fulfilling the very mission for which He was sent. Oh, Jesus could have easily come down off of that cross. He didn't need anybody's help. He could have been released, healed, and He could have wiped every single one of them into oblivion. But in their spiritual ignorance, they didn't realize that had He come down off of that cross, had He saved Himself, all of humanity would have been lost and condemned to hell, you and me included. And I don't know about you, I am mighty glad, I am mighty thankful, I am mighty humble by the fact that Jesus chose not to yield to that temptation. I like that old gospel song that says it wasn't nails that kept him on that cross. Mm-mm. There's not been a nail, never will be a nail that can hold the Son of God against His will anywhere. It was love. It was love. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. In this, the love of God was manifested towards us in that He has sent His only begotten Son into this world that we might live through Him. It was love. In this, the love of God was demonstrated that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, make no mistake about it. The theme of Easter is love. God's love. For wretched, undeserving sinners such as those people around the cross and Charlie Martin and each and every one of you. In stark contrast, I want to close by sharing. In contrast to the cruelty of his captors and the antagonism of his adversaries, folks, don't miss the big picture. The compassion of the Christ. The wickedness of sinful man. I mean, this is, this is as wicked as it gets. This is as low as humankind can get. Killing the Son of God? Come on! It doesn't get any lower than that. The wickedness of sinful man encounters the greatness of the love of God. In the midst of His agony, the Savior extends grace. In verse 45, Now, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. Jesus was crucified somewhere around nine o'clock in the morning. Folks, I can't hardly stand to have a splinter in my finger for 30 minutes. I'm a, a weenie when it comes to a wimp, when it comes to pain. He's hung there already for three hours. But the worst is yet to come. The worst is yet to come. At noon, a phenomenon that scientists can't explain. Some people say it was a solar eclipse, but actually scientists have gone back and astronomers have gone back and said, no, the stars were not in, the sun was not in alignment with the earth at that time or the moon. There was no solar eclipse. And some have tried the other physical explanations that all fall by the wayside. But make no mistake about it, because not only does Matthew tell us here 
in chapter 27, verse 45, at the ninth hour at noon, or the sixth hour rather, until the ninth hour, from noon until three that afternoon, there was darkness over the land. Kind of like there was darkness that came over the nation of Egypt. The sovereign, eternal creator God of the universe can do anything with the physical elements that He chooses to do. And I believe that the Father in His great compassion and love for His only begotten Son understood just what His Son understood, and that is that the worst was ready to come. And just at that time when He was about to fulfill the cup that Jesus was agonizing about in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Father knew that once the sins of the world began to descend upon the precious darling shoulders of His innocent Son, that all, all the sin of mankind would be upon His Son. And that the, at the, for the first time in eternity, the Father would turn His back on His Son. He's holy. God is holy. He cannot look upon sin. He cannot contend with sin. He cannot associate with sin. And so the darkness represents a, a, a veil of sympathy as if to, to cloak His Son in the worst hour of His life. And Matthew jumps over. He gives us the cliff note version. He goes right to the ninth hour and says, And Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Somewhere around three o'clock on Good Friday, you ought to pause whatever you're doing. You ought to stop whatever you're doing. And let your mind go back 2,000 years ago to a place called Golgotha and understand at that very moment, at that very moment, your ugly sins, your soul-condemning, hell-bound sins, along with my sins and the sins of all of humanity, came crashing down upon the shoulders of the Son of God for the first time in all of His existence. He encountered and He became sin, is what the Bible says in Romans chapter 5, verse 21. And He, God, made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, not just to experience sin, He became sin. He embodied our sins so that He could take upon Himself the very wrath that was ours by justice. And with that, the sensation of the humanity of Christ did only what He knew to do. He cried out in fulfillment of Psalm 22.1 where David says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Luke takes us over in chapter... If you just jump over to Luke very quickly. I want you to see. Jesus, in the midst of His agony, in the midst of His torture, exhibits compassion. He extends grace. Look at Luke chapter 23. You are just going to look at this very quickly. On the cross... There were some statements that Jesus made. 
Now looking at the crowd that had betrayed him, the crowd that had turned on him, the crowd that was mocking him, looking at the Roman soldiers who had tortured him, looking at the Jewish leaders who had mocked him and, and, and set him up. Oh, listen, he looked down upon that crowd that day and he said in verse 34 of Luke 23, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. You say, okay, that was a nice, compassionate statement to make. Folks, it's got teeth. It's got teeth. It means something. Because if you were to go over into your Bible, into Acts, in chapter 2, when the Apostle Peter, after Pentecost, filled with the Holy Spirit, is confronting the multitude that have gathered around him, Listen to what he said in verse 36. He's talking to a crowd of Jews. He said, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified. Hey, can it get any more pointed than that? Because surely in that crowd there were people who stood at the foot of the cross, who taunted Jesus, who participated in His crucifixion. And he says, This Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, verse 37 of Acts chapter 2, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? In verse 38, Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall be, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Did all the people who were at the foot of the cross get saved? No. Jesus knew when he said to the Father, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. They're blind right now, Father, but one day you're going to open their eyes. Jesus was extending forgiveness in advance. He says one day they will ask, Brethren, what must we do? We're guilty. We're guilty. We're guilty. What must we do? They knew. Jesus knew that they would need grace. Folks, is that compassion or what? You remember back in chapter 27 when Matthew was talking about the two thieves that were one on each side and they were joined in with the crowd. They're taunting him. They're saying, hey, if you, you know, if you saw the Son of God, get, get yourself down from here and get us down too. And they were taunting him back and forth. But something is happening. Because back in Luke chapter 23 verse 39 it says, then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, the other who also was taunting at one time, answered and rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, folks, this is a statement of faith. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He didn't say, Hey, Jesus. Hey, Nazarene. He said, Lord, Anyone that can hang on a cross and suffer like you suffered and look down into the face of the mob that is doing this to you and say, Father, forgive them. There's more to this man than meets the eye. And in that critical moment, Jesus said to that man on the cross, this day, this day, I believe it was that day. I believe Good Friday I believe before the sun went down that day, 
That robber who was condemned and headed to hell, he had every right to leave this world and spend eternity in hell separated from God. But that day, I believe, when he breathed his last on the cross, guess who was ready to reach out to hold his hand and welcome him into paradise? You know what that tells me? The message of that? Folks, it's never too late. I wouldn't recommend waiting until your deathbed to try to make things right with the Lord. I wouldn't recommend that at all because sometimes you don't get that choice. But maybe there's somebody that you think they've gone too far. They've done too much. Their heart's too hard. They've rebuffed me too many times. I'm tired of talking to them about the Lord and them giving me the stiff arm. Listen, don't ever write anybody off because right here we see evidence that it's never, never, never too late and nobody is too bad for the grace of God. And I want you to see, finally, in these lonely, in the lonely shadow of death, he was concerned about others. When Jesus, going back to Matthew chapters 27 and verse 46, he was concerned about his relationship with his father. Father, I don't see you anymore. I can't sense you anymore. We're separated. Jesus is still compassionately reaching out for His eternal Father. But then in John's Gospel in chapter 19, I think it's so touching that there... Now this is after the, 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 the sins have been laid on His shoulders. This is after the cup has been administered. But John tells us in John chapter 19, in verse 26 says, when Jesus therefore saw His mother and the disciple whom He loved standing by, that was John, He said to His mother, Woman, behold your son. And He wasn't pointing at Himself. He said, Mama, this is your new, new son. John's going to take care of you. You don't have to worry. I know John. He loves me. You are going to be fine. And He said to John, Behold, your mother. She's your mother. You treat her like I would treat her. Jesus, in the agony of the physical torture, but not only that, the spiritual torture of having been separated, still has the cognizance of being able to have compassion. And then, going back to Matthew chapter 57, uh, 27, verse 50, it says, Jesus, when He cried out with a loud cry, Yielded up his spirit. In Luke's gospel, he says, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. In John's gospel, chapter 19, verse 30, he also says, It is finished. Actually, he says, It's finished. After he had taken care of everybody else, his mission was completed. God says to God, it's finished. There's nothing else left for me to do. And Luke says his last words are, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Do you understand? Jesus was not a victim. His life was not taken from him. Do you understand that? He's still in control. He releases 
his spirit and accepts death. Folks, you know what that is? That's the image of a victorious king. The king of kings. The Lord of lords. The king of glory. Only a king of all the kings and a lord of all the lords, a God of all gods, can say to his own spirit, it is finished. Let go. And I'll take you back to the first part of the message and the question I ask you. How does your knowledge of the events of the crucifixion of Christ how does the events of the cruci- your knowledge of the events of the crucifixion of Christ affect the way you live? Sitting in my study, finalizing the preparation of this message one night, I'll tell you what it did to me. I keep a box of Kleenexes close by because I know there's danger in sermon preparation. God's going to get all over me before He has a chance to get to you. As I'm trying to type out some of the final words, and I see my Savior, and I consider all that He experienced on that cross for me and you, tears streaming down my cheek. I just hung my head and I prayed a prayer of thanksgiving. I said, Oh Lord Jesus, if, and I know I have taken you for granted before. And for that I ask your forgiveness. Oh, to know that you love me this much. Oh, I recommit myself to you. May I never complain or grumble about having to sacrifice or suffer anything for you when I consider all that you did for me. <clears throat> Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. All to Him we owe. Though our sins were red like crimson, He washed them. Praise God. White as snow. Oh, what a Savior. Would you bow with me? Lord Jesus, as we humbly reflect upon the teachings of the Scriptures pertaining to this horrific event that led to the most celebratory victory in all of humankind and human history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But Lord, may we never take for granted what You endured before and on the cross for us. You have spoken so clearly in Your Word just how much You love us. And I pray, Lord, as we reflect upon this, that You speak to our hearts about how much we should love You.